If you'll turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the Gospels in the New Testament. We turn this morning to Matthew chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. As, as you turn there, I would just say and remind you, as I've thought about and been reminded of this week, that, that all of God's Word is inspired, it's all inerrant, all authoritative. We certainly know that. We would confess that. We are a people of, of the Word, a people who look to the Word, look to the truth, and submit to the authority of God's Word as Christians. But with that said, I think we would readily admit that there are portions of God's Word that are easier than other portions of God's Word. And I would say that if you've been here over the last month, you would say, yeah, the last couple weeks have been kind of difficult portions of God's Word. As we walk through Matthew 18 and, and look at the instructions that, that the Lord has given us in Matthew 18 for how we, how we function and live together as the people of God within the Messianic kingdom. The last two weeks in particular, looking at, looking at what it means to hold one another accountable to walking with the Lord and pursuing Him and, and thinking about church discipline and what that looks like have been difficult passages of Scripture. And the passage we come to this morning is a difficult, difficult one as well. For it deals with a very heart-wrenching topic, one that has touched most everyone in this room, I would say, in one way or another. It deals with the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow of divorce. And so with that said, I, I just remind us as we think about this, we think about the text, we think about our Lord's words here, just remind us, of what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So as we, as we come to this text, for some of us, it will be one that is profitable for teaching us more about God's good design for marriage. For some of us, it will be reproving us and correcting us, and for others, training us in righteousness. Let's pray before we look into the Word this morning. God, we ask You in this moment, God, to use Your Word to teach, to reprove, to correct, and to train us. Oh God, we look to You and Your truth now, in Christ's name, Amen. Well, you may know this, Matthew 19, 1-12 is, is really an extended version or extended uh, passage that, that greatly parallels what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. So when we went through the Sermon on the Mount and we came to Matthew 5, 31 and 32, I, I used chapter 19 in that sermon greatly. And we walked through the two passages and, and because Matthew 19 greatly explains some of the context and background for Matthew 5. And so as we did that, we did look at Matthew 19, and, and we'll look at some of that again this morning. Some of the, the principles, to be honest with you, I'm just going to share with you again. So if you're a note taker and you look back at Matthew 5, you should see some similarities, I hope. And so you'll, you'll recognize some of that, but we want to look at something in specific that Jesus does in this passage that is very instructive to us as we live out our walk with Christ and as we confront various issues and questions about our faith. And so we'll look at that and, and how Jesus brings us back to God's good design and why he does that this morning. 
If you look at the word of the Lord there in chapter 19, let's read it together. Beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, It's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We come to the first two verses there in chapter 19, we see a shift in, in the narrative, what's going on here in Matthew, verse, or chapter 18, there was the great discourse, that, that fourth discourse, and we get into 19, we see them departing and going away from Galilee, entering the region of Judea. Now, the region of Judea had a prominent city in there. You might know the city, the city of Jerusalem. And so, as the disciples and Jesus go from Galilee into Judea, he is taking them toward Calvary. He's taking them toward Jerusalem. So the one who came for the express purpose of dying, right, of giving his life as a ransom for many, we're told in Matthew and Mark, is now making his way to Jerusalem where he knew what awaited, where he knew the cross was before him. As a matter of fact that you might want to know or a side note, the disciples will not return to Galilee until Matthew 28. You might remember in Matthew 28, 10, that Jesus instructs them and says, go to Galilee where I will meet you. I will meet you there. That's after he rose from the grave. So the resurrected Christ gave them that instruction. And then they do do that. They do go to Galilee. And then in Matthew 28, 16, right before he gives them the great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right before he makes that statement, he does so with them in Galilee. So you have a time period from now until Matthew 28 in which the disciples are no longer in Galilee. They've journeyed to Judea. As they do, large crowds follow him, we're told, and he heals them. In the midst of this, the Pharisees, who we learned a few chapters back, the intensity and the attacks and the the schemes of the Pharisees just keep on getting greater. They keep seeking to trap him and trick him and and catch him somehow in in a way that they might undermine the ministry of Christ. They come to him in verse 3, and they come to him to test him. 
And so the test is what? Is divorce lawful? Is divorce lawful? That's the test they put. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is the question that they put before him. And they do this to test him, to trick him, to try to trap him. Now, as we go through this passage, I want to make something clear. And what I want you to understand is that when we think through what we read in 19, 1 through 9 in particular, or 3 through 9 in particular, we think about Matthew 5, 31 to 32, and, and other passages we look at when we think about divorce. We need to understand that divorce is always, it's always a result of sin at some level. It's always a result of sin at some level. It's always a result of brokenness. However, with that said, we also have to recognize that not all people involved in a divorce are guilty of sin. There are situations where one party is innocent, one party has done all they can to sustain and hold on to that marriage, to hold fast to that commitment that they made, yet one abandons them, one leaves them, or perhaps one was unfaithful in those instances. Of course, there are instances where Divorce, every party is guilty. All I want you to know and to understand is that divorce itself is a result of sin and brokenness in our world and our day. And I say that to say that, again, it's impacted all of us at some level. It's impacted my own life at various levels with family members. Okay, All of us know the pain and the sorrow of it. And so we approach it humbly, recognizing that it is a result of sin, but we understand also that every situation is a little different, and how we understand that and see that is something we need to consider important and understand. Now, verse 3, the question is what? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. Now, that statement's important. Now, you might remember when we were here, and I know some of you guys, I'm not even going to ask you if you remember this because I've learned not to do that. But some of you that were here two years ago, hopefully this will sound somewhat familiar. I told you then when we looked at Matthew 5 that there were two schools of thought in the intertestamental period. There were two uh, kind of schools of rabbinic teaching and how they handled the issue of divorce. One school was more conservative. One school was more liberal. The, the skill of Hillel was more liberal. The school of Shammai was more conservative. So the school of Shammai limited divorce only to adultery, only to unfaithfulness. However, the school of Hillel permitted a man to divorce his wife for any cause, just to give a certificate of divorce and to call it good. They're very liberal in their interpretation of divorce. And like in our day, the same was true in that day. The most liked or accepted, the most popular interpretation was the more liberal interpretation that made divorce very easy and, and made it for a very cheap view of marriage. Kind of that divorce on demand thing. If you want to divorce her, go ahead. Just make sure you give a certificate and then move on. It's all good from that point. And so that question comes with this context in mind. So they ask, is it okay to divorce a, a, a woman, to divorce your wife for any cause? That's the, that's the important phrase there. That's contextual, right, for any cause, because that is what the school of Hillel taught. Any cause is fine. Just make sure you give that certificate, okay? Now, what we need to see this morning and what I want us to really focus in on is Jesus's response. Look what Jesus does in verse four. How does he respond? It says he answers 
Have you not read? Have you not read? His, his response is instructive for us specifically pertaining to this issue, right? It's also instructive for us generally as we just think about issues of life and difficulties that we come across. So when we think about him saying, have you not read? What is he saying here? What's the point? What is he doing? He's bringing them back to what? The Bible. That's right. He's bringing them back to the Scriptures. He's not saying, well, what do the, the rabbis teach? What's their opinion on this? What, what's, what's popular in the day? No, he says, have you not read? He's bringing them back to Scripture. He's not concerned with rabbinic teaching interpretations. He's not concerned with cultural narratives. He's not concerned with the, the opinions of the disciples. or He doesn't survey the crowd and say, hey, what does everybody here think? What's your opinion? He takes them back to the Scriptures. He says, have you not read? Have you not read? And so he addresses a specific question, right, in particular by pointing them to Scripture. The general principle that we learn is what? That any time we come to the question of should I or can I, any time those questions come upon us, our reflex needs to be what? Let's look at Scripture. What does Scripture say? What does it teach us? What does the Word of God say? Why? Because the Word is authoritative. Scripture is truth. And so we look to the Word of God to see what the Word says. You need to understand that this is a reflex that we really need to develop. That when these things come up, we just simply go, okay, what's Scripture say? It's so easy. It's so easy. And young people, I would kind of push you really hard on this. It's so easy when things come up or you see something on, on whatever your social media platform is or you watch a, a, a YouTube video or you see something. It's so easy to come upon that and to look at it and to watch it. And somebody say, well, what about that? What do you think about that? Well, I think. And that's the common phrase or, or something. Or you hear something and go, well, I think this. I think this. I think that. Well, that's great what you think. But we need to be more concerned with what does God's word say? right? Let's go to what God's Word says before we go, well, I think it's this, right? Listen, my opinions can change. I can be very flighty, right? If I look at what I thought <laughs> when I was 16 as compared to what I think when I'm 46, there's a great shift. You know what hasn't shifted in those 30 years? God's Word. God's Word says the same exact thing today as it said 30 years ago. It hasn't shifted one bit right? The Word of God is the same. Culturally, what's culturally accepted, what's culturally applauded will shift and change according to time, according to context, according to the people you're around. It will shift and change. We talk about that a lot, but God's Word remains the same. It endures forever. That's why we read in Isaiah, and then Peter quotes this later in 1 Peter, that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. God's Word is consistent. It's truth. And we look to it. It is true truth, as it's been described. It truly is true. And so Jesus says, have you not read? Right? Have you not read? Now, here's what he points them to. This matter of divorce comes, and he points them back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to just flip back to the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus quotes and brings them back to the beginning 
Now, if you, as you turn there, if you think about just kind of the timeline of Scripture, the, the biblical narrative, Genesis 1 and 2, that's creation. It's where God sets forth and, and creates all that there is. He, he establishes certain things in creation. He gets to the end and sees that it is all very good. Sin does not come into the picture until Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we have Satan coming in and deceiving Adam and Eve, and and they fall, they rebel against God, sin comes, and then you have the remainder of Scripture after that. But Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation narrative, and we get a picture of God's good design, and that's what Jesus does here. In in 19, 4 through 6, he brings them back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he says, the way we answer questions of marriage, divorce, is to look at what is God's good design for these things. What is the intent of marriage? So we're going to look first at Scripture. So Jesus takes them back. If you look first, the first thing he does is he brings them back to Genesis 1, 27. Genesis 1, 27. There's two questions there. I think it is interesting that your first kind of reflex when you hear the question on divorce, you hear the question asked for the Pharisees, I, my first reflex at least would be to go back, if I went back to Genesis 1 and 2, it would be go to Genesis 2.24, right? Where it talks about a man shall leave his mother and father and will cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I would go straight there. Well, Jesus does go there. We see that in a moment. But first he goes back further, doesn't he? Where does he go to first? He goes to Genesis 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He goes back to the beginning. Why? This is a question of divorce, Jesus. Why would you go back to Genesis 1, 27? It says nothing right there about marriage, does it? God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Jesus goes all the way back there because marriage is rooted in God's good creation of man in his image as male and female. It is critical. We think about marriage. We think about what is God's good design for marriage? That we understand that God created male and female. And he created us in his image, in his likeness. We need to know that as issues of sexuality and marriage and family in our day, they just spiral out of control. We need to know and remember that God has given us clear revelation of his good design for marriage and sexuality and the family. We are not without truth. We are not without guidance of how God intended the family to look and to function. He's given it to us. We need to look to it. And what we see here, we're going to understand in God's good design is that the core of our being, thus the core of our marriages, is that God created us, or sorry, that we are created by God. We're created by God in God's image according to God's design, and for God's purposes. It's an important statement that we have been created by God, in God's image, according to God's design, and for God's purposes. 
This is why he takes us back to Genesis 1.27. We need to understand that fundamentally before we can understand the purpose of marriage and what it looks like. Let's think about that just for a minute. To say that we've been created by God means to say that we are the creatures. He is the creator. He is the one that fashioned us. He is Lord. Man is not. We don't determine what marriage looks like. And we don't determine what justifies dissolving marriage. God does that because he is Lord. We are created in his image. We're created by him. He is the creator. So secondly, to say that we are created in God's image, what does that mean? Well, to say that we're created in God's image means that we as individuals and couples in marriage are to reflect him. We're to image him. Marriage is not meant to reflect our own ideas or to image our own plans. Just to image God. We are created in His image. C.S. Lewis taught that to be created in the image of God was to, to have the capacity to make moral choices, to make moral decisions, to understand what is right and what is wrong. I, w- I would concur with Lewis. I do believe that is what it means. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? We know it's not just physical. It's not physical because, one, God is spirit. Two, he says male and female. And we're created physically different. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? Certainly part of that is that we would have the capacity for moral judgment, that we would understand right and wrong. And we do, don't we? We do. Everyone sitting in here has the capacity to understand right and wrong. And so when it comes to marriage, when we think about marriage, it means that we can either embrace what is true and right, or, as Romans 1.18 says, by our unrighteousness, we can suppress what is true and right. We can embrace the truth or suppress the truth. We have the capacity, we have the ability as image bearers to know what is right, and what is wrong, what is true, and what is not. The final statement I made there was that, or not the final, the third one, is that we were made by God in the image of God according to God's design. According to God's design. That's an important statement, and it is growing in importance daily in our day that he says what? Male and female, he created them. We were created male or female. Jesus roots marriage in this. You understand the importance? This question of divorce comes, and Jesus first says, let me remind you of Genesis 127, the roots, the foundation of marriage. You're created male and female. There's two things this does. When he says that that, that we're both created male and female in the image of God, it says, first of all, foundational to marriage, this truth that all are created in the image of God, all are image bearers, male and female, husbands and wives, equal image bearers of God. One is not more important than the other. One does not have more dignity than the other. One does not have more uh, value than the other. Both are equal in value, worth, importance as image bearers of God. But to say male and female also teaches us what? That we are different. And we have different roles. We may be equal. We may be of equal worth and value and importance in our marriage, but we have different roles as male and female. Specific roles for the marriage and the family. And we're created 
for God's purposes. For his purpose, we, we read, if you read on the, the very next verse, 128, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's purpose is ultimately that we would be fruitful and multiply, that we would bring about the flourishing of creation. Sinful distortions of marriage do not bring about the flourishing of God's creation. Sinful distortions of marriage, the sinful ending of marriages does not lead us to be fruitful and multiply. So we have Jesus taking us to 127. The very next statement he makes is what? Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, he, he quotes it, right? 2.24, look in your in your copy of the word, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here marriage is ordained by God. Marriage is not an institution created by man. It is not something that the state established. Therefore, it is not something that the state defines. Marriage is ordained by God and it is defined by God. And here we read that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The other thing we need to note, again, this is Genesis 1 and 2. This is what's known as a creation ordinance. That's why we can rightfully stand as Christians for marriage between one man and one woman because it is a creation ordinance. That means it applies to all of creation. All of creation. All people. All marriages should be as God designed marriages. And so we would affirm that and we would come before that and recognize that it is to be between one man and one woman. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It is to be a covenant commitment, an enduring commitment of covenant loyalty between a husband and a wife. Some of you who are older, who grew up on the King James, or maybe you still use the King James, this phrase will sound familiar, leave and cleave, right? The younger people in here, I, I kind of get a kick out of this. This is now like one of my amusing things for when I do premarital counseling, just for kicks and giggles. I try to find out how many people know what leave and cleave means. And now, <laughs> young, you, young people, you're like, cleave, leave, what? I don't know. Cleave, huh? Older people are like, oh yeah, leave and cleave, got it, right? Leave and cleave. The, the man shall leave his mother and father, and it's translated in the King James, cleave unto his wife. That word in, in Hebrew is debak, and it, and it means to hold fast to, to cling tightly to something, to stick to something, to stick together, to, to be united. That's why some of you, it, it says hold fast to his wife. That's what the ESV says, it, hold fast. It expresses covenant loyalty. That's what the word was used for in just real quick, Deuteronomy 10.20, 11.22, 13.4. All are instances where it simply expresses covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty between God and his people. 
In Joshua 22.5 and 23.8, Joshua uses it in his farewell to express the way in which the people are to, to depend on and love Yahweh. They're to love Him with covenant loyalty. They're to stick to Him. They're to hold fast to Him, to cling to Him. We read of it in negative ways too. In, in 1 Kings 11.2, Solomon's heart was turned from the Lord. Why? Because he stuck to and cling to women of other nations that worship false gods. And so those false gods held or brought Solomon's heart away from the Lord. Because he held fast to that which he was not supposed to hold fast to. In Psalm 63, 8, David declares that his soul clings to God. It holds fast to God. It sticks to God. It cleaves unto God. Genesis 2.24, when we read to, that the man is to leave his father and mother and to cleave unto his wife or to hold fast unto his wife, it is an enduring covenant commitment that they make. And so marriage, as God designed, is to be of covenant commitment, is to be enduring. And we read there that the two become one flesh, male and female, female uniquely created to fit together in God's good design. God has gloriously, beautifully created male and female to fit together, to function together for the flourishing of His creation. And here we see described the new unity found in the bonds of marriage. This statement elevates the marriage relationship to primary position. Primary position. It's not just a physical leaving of mother and father. In fact, in that day, it was more common that the wife came into the, the husband's house. And so instead of the, the man physically leaving, what was most common is that the wife came in and lived among them. So it's not a physical leaving here. It is a relational leaving in which the relationship with mother and father is no longer primary, but the relationship with husband and wife is now primary. There's many instances where divorce comes upon a home because this union is violated, that the primacy of the husband and wife relationship is set aside and secondary for another relationship or placed behind other endeavors and marriages suffer. So just in summary of Genesis 1 and 2, what is God's good design? How would we articulate God's good design for marriage? If we're going to understand divorce and the brokenness, what is God's good design? Here, just briefly, God, first, God created us male and female. What is God's good design for marriage? One, God created us male and female. Two, God created marriage and it is good. Number three, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. Number four, the marriage commitment is to be an enduring covenant commitment between his husband or between the husband and his wife. And then finally, the marriage relationship is intended to be fruitful. That is God's good design that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, Jesus brought the discussion back here. When the question came up about divorce, this is where he brought the discussion. We would do well to do the same. 
when we think about these issues to bring the discussion here because we need to know that God's good design is to never be forgotten, is to never be just flippantly cast aside for man's opinions, man's conveniences, or man's desires. At this point, if you flip back to Matthew 19, the Pharisees follow up with the trap. Here's their trap. They test him. He answers. Here's the trap, verses 7 to 9. Why then did Moses permit divorce? Aha! Gotcha! Well, verse 8, <laughs> Jesus said, well, it was because of your hardness of heart. It was, it was because of how hardened your heart is by the deceitfulness of sin. They, they asked him in verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That, that's a reference back to Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. In that passage, you see Moses making an allowance, talking about a certificate of divorce that is based on some sort of indecency, a, a word there, there, there that scholars aren't completely sure what it means. What we do know is it means some sort of immorality, some sort of, of physical immorality that they might come to know and they would issue a certificate of divorce. That certificate was issued in a way to protect the woman. That she would still be able to be married in the future and still be able to be cared for. It was intended to protect the wives. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, it is your own sinfulness that led to the problem of divorce. Your own sinfulness led to this, and God in His mercy and His kindness made provision to ensure the protection of wives, the provision for wives, that they would not be permanently just cast aside, forgotten, left. You see that? God's grace and God's goodness and God's kindness and His mercy in the midst of our brokenness. We understand that through the rest of the Old Testament, it's not as though just now that that's there, and Moses said that in 24, that, that God now has this low view of marriage. We don't have time to, to jump there today. You can go back and look at the Matthew 5 or listen to the Matthew 5 sermon. We spend a little more time in there, but if you go back to Malachi 2, in Malachi 2, verses 13 to 16, God deals with the people's uh, worship that was worship that was basically falling on deaf ears. It was falling and, and it was in vain. And the reason it was in vain is because husbands were being unfaithful to their wives. Unfaithfulness in the home, in the marriage, was resulting in vain worship. And so in that passage, God renewed, or didn't renew, but he points out and he makes the point very clearly in Malachi of his high view of marriage, the value of marriage. He calls them in verse uh, 15, he says, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He calls them to marital fidelity. Man's sin, God's grace. And then we see in verse 
4 to 6, verse 9 of chapter 19. We see Jesus teaching on the value of the marriage covenant in 4 to 6. Remember, he took him back to the creation narrative where we understand that, that the marriage is based on covenant loyalty to one another, covenant commitment to one another. And then in 19.9 of Matthew, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If you look back up at verse 6, he says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let no man separate it. It's covenant loyalty. It's teaching of the, the value of the marriage commitment. We're to hold fast to one another. Again, we need to see that in the midst of all this conversation, Jesus does not bow down or backtrack and come into what is popular in the day. He holds fast to the truth of God's word. And he points them to that. So I want to just share with you quick four things Four things that we should understand about marriage from this passage. If we look at verses 3 through 9, what are four things that we need to understand about marriage? What he says here, the first thing in verse 9 is we need to understand the seriousness of the marriage covenant. The seriousness of it. Why? Because Jesus attaches divorce to the seventh commandment. If you, uh, Exodus twenty fourteen, you shall not commit adultery. And here in verse 9, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he's attaching it to the seventh commandment. This is no cheap view of marriage. Jesus is saying, you may have come into this cheap view of divorce that it's just flipping and no big deal, but it is a big deal. Don't just walk walk away and say, hey, no harm, no foul. Jesus puts... The breaks on saying everyone who divorces is guilty of adultery with one exception, sexual immorality. So Jesus teaches of the seriousness of marriage. The second thing he does is he calls us to that enduring covenant commitment. What we just talked to, he calls us to an enduring covenant commitment. We need to see that. We need to keep coming back to verse 6. as such an important statement by Christ. What therefore God has joined together. God brings us together. What he has joined together, let not man separate. Let us not be those who separate. Let us be numbered among those who are committed to an enduring covenant commitment. Let us not be numbered among those who just throw in the towel when feelings change. Who just toss the towel in when times are tough. Or who get upset when he doesn't change or when she does. But let us endure and hold fast to one another for the long haul. The third thing is that Christ calls us to see the importance of faithfulness in marriage. The importance of faithfulness in marriage. Verse 19, he gives one exception. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, some people will debate this verse. This is a a verse that you'll hear a lot of debate on. There's different views on it. I think what's important to understand is we look at context. Jesus is speaking specifically to the marriage covenant that is broken, a divorce. 
right? That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about engagement, betrothal. In, in Matthew 1.18, we read that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. It's a different word than what he's using here in this context. This is Matthew 19.5-6. is referring to marriage. He takes us back to marriage being consummated, right? Genesis 2.24, he brings us back to that. Okay, so he's talking about the marriage covenant. The word here for sexual immorality is a word that will sound familiar to your ears. Porneia. It's a word that refers to any type of sexual immorality, a wide range of sexually immoral actions. That, that of sexual unfaithfulness is problematic for the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is to be one of sexual faithfulness and fidelity to one another. Now, the thing that we need to see here as well is in verse 9, in that case, Jesus permits, but he does not command divorce. That means I, I know that there are those who have gone through and experienced this. This is not a command that at the moment's notice of sexual immorality in the marriage commitment, that as soon as that arises, that we've been commanded divorce. That is not the case. It's permitted, not commanded. We need to think about that. The fourth thing Christ teaches us about marriage is this. He calls us to see the sinful consequences of what you might call just cheap divorce, immoral cheap divorce. It's not only sinful in itself, but it just complicates and brings additional sin into your life and the lives of others. You just flippantly walk away with no biblical reason. It simply complicates Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Elsewhere we learn that it brings that upon others as well. We need to understand that the consequences of such are serious. Now, before we move on, I want to tell you, and this is, I'm just going to tell you, to be very honest with you, this is exactly out of the Matthew 5 sermon. I think these things need to be said because I know there are people sitting in here right now Quite honestly, you're sitting in here and you just want to be out of here. You're hurting. And this is a very real and a very tender topic and subject. And so I think we don't move past this without speaking a few things about the issue of divorce. Here's some things I want you to know and hear today. One, we must value, honor, and fight for healthy, God-honoring marriages, whether they're ours or the marriages of others. We have a responsibility for that. We need to honor them, prize them, protect them, fight for them as Christians. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Listen, it doesn't matter what chair you sit in this morning. It doesn't matter if you're a kid, a teenager, 
a college student, if you're married with kids in the home, if you're a senior adult, if you've been divorced, if you're single, none of those things matter. It doesn't change the fact that we all have a responsibility to prize and esteem and value and protect godly marriages in our midst and around us. We have that responsibility. And we need to embrace that and we need to fight for that in our day. The second thing I would say to you is that today is the best time to invest in the health of your marriage, no matter what point it is. Today's the best time to invest in the health of your marriage, whether it's hanging by a thread or whether you just got married recently. Today is the best time to invest in the health of your marriage. The next thing I would say is this, is that if you're unmarried, when you do walk into marriage, resolve to do so with a covenant commitment to your spouse. Don't be so enamored about the experience of the wedding day and preparing for all the details that you forget to prepare for your marriage and a healthy, God-honoring marriage. Fourth thing I would say is this, is if you've gone through a divorce, if you're one who has sit here and say, I, you're talking to me. There's, there's two ways to think about that. One, if it wasn't your fault, then rest in God's healing and His comfort and His presence in your life. Know His grace. Know the strength that He affords. That He will never leave you or forsake you. But if you sit here and you look back and go, I've gone that route and it was my fault. Maybe it was years ago. Maybe it was last year. But you sit and you realize maybe for the first time that I have sinned before God in what I did. Then repent. Repent. Come before God and repent of your sin before Him. Confess that sin to God. Ask His forgiveness. Know His forgiveness. In both cases, you need to know that God's mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing are real. They're real. It's not just some concept we talk about. But God truly does those things. So we look to Him. If you're in either of those situations, please come talk to us. We, we want to help you. We want to walk through that with you and come alongside you wherever that may be. And, and that, that leads into the fifth thing. If you're here and you're considering divorce, if it's something that you're battling through and you say, you don't know what it looks like to live in my house, I think that's the best thing for us, then let us come alongside you. Come talk to one of the pastors or elders. Please, let us come alongside you. Let us walk that path with you. Let us help you. Let us put you in place with someone that would help you save your marriage. Don't just resign your fa yourself to that. Well, it's just, that's just how it needs to be. It's just what we need to do. Let us come alongside you and help you and counsel with you. And then finally, the thing I would say, because again, I know this is unfortunately real, is if you're in a situation, we think about marriage and the home and God's good design. I can tell you, 
One thing that is not a part of God's good design for marriage in the home is abuse. That is not a part of it. And if you find yourself in that situation where you are being victimized in the home, come talk to us so we can help you and get the necessary help for you to ensure your safety. Let us come alongside you in that instance. If that's something you're dealing with from the past, you're struggling with the consequences and repercussions and the grief and the sorrow of that, come to us. Let us help you. Let us walk alongside this with you. Please, please. We love you. Look quickly at verses 10 through 12. The disciples come in again with a timely question and conclusion. <laughs> there, I think there's a little tinge maybe where we can find some humor. I'm hoping so. I need to find a little humor here for a moment. The disciples look to Christ. They've heard this teaching. They've heard his response to the Pharisees, right? And they look and they say, well, if this is the case for a man and his wife, it's better just not to marry. <laughs> right? Do you see the, the disciples here like, all right, like if we get married and things go south and she's not who I thought she was or she changes, you know, I think that's one, it's no accident that Scripture says be faithful to the wife of your youth. Right? She changes. He's not exactly what I thought. Maybe I just shouldn't get married. That's probably the better option. Right? That's, that's their plea. That's their conclusion. Maybe we should just stay single. That's what they're referring to. And the disciples say this in verse 10. They're referring to the, the conversation of 3 verses 9. Now look at what Jesus, Jesus says in verse 11. He says, but he says to them, not everyone can receive this. He's not talking about 3 through 9. When Jesus says not everyone can receive this saying, this saying that he says there is not three through nine. This saying refers back to the disciples' conclusion. The disciples' conclusion is, well, well, maybe it's just best if we don't marry. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Not everyone can receive that saying. You see, the disciples are, are wrestling with this issue of lifelong commitment. They're, they're living in a context where divorce is prevalent. Marriage is cheap. It's just like our day. But Jesus, when they come and they go, well, maybe we just shouldn't marry, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's probably going to be hard. Probably better for you just to stay single and do your thing and live on your own. No. He doesn't say that at all. What does he do? 
He says, not everyone can receive this saying. And he refers to, in verse 11, this is important. He refers to singleness as a gift. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Only those to whom it is given. Singleness is a gift given to some. It's the same thing Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is another important passage when we think about marriage, the purpose of marriage, the importance of marriage, the importance of things that go on in marriage. We think about the issue of abandonment and what that how that applies and divorce. Paul deals with all that in 1 Corinthians 7, but he also describes singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 as a gift. Here, Jesus describes it as a gift. Paul in 7, 7 of 1 Corinthians describes it as a gift. Marriage may be the norm. It is the norm. You see it throughout Scripture that it is the norm, but it is not the only way to live faithfully unto the Lord. Please hear that. Please a number of you sitting in here who are single of all ages, you need to understand that that is not because you're deficient or defective or no one loves you. There's a multitude of reasons. And for some, it is a gift given of the Lord. It's not something we look down on and go, well, there's something wrong with you. No. Marriage is indeed spoken of throughout creation is, is what is the norm or throughout the scriptures through the norm, but it is not required for faithful living. You can live faithfully unto the Lord and never be married. How do we know? Any guesses? Anybody want to throw out a Sunday school answer at this point? Thank you. Jesus. Jesus was single. Anyone on a level of charge of unfaithfulness to God against Him? No. Now, what Jesus does here is He uses the example, the terminology of eunuch. Parents, I'll let you explain that later to your child. But when He talks about that in verse 12, He talks about, there, He gives three instances of eunuchs and the way He describes them and, and fashions them in different ways and descriptions, we understand He's not talking about just the physical um, incident of being a eunuch. All right? What he's doing is he's, he's explaining different reasons for singleness. Just look at what he does. In the first one, he talks about, verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. So those who, from birth, there's some sort of, of difficulty, challenge, or defect. There's something that you're born and you cannot uh, perform what is needed for procreation. You're a eunuch from birth. You're born that way. Or second, the second part of verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs. I'm sorry. Uh, there are eunuchs who have um, been made eunuchs by men. This is probably the traditional understanding of it at some level. Those who have been made eunuchs for the sake of serving royalty or for the sake of some really grotesque things of that day, things that we experience in our own day even. And third, those who have made themselves units for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those who have chosen singleness. Now, you understand that is why those who have chosen not to physically bring that upon themselves because a careful study of just the history of the day, 
That is not something that was taught or done that we saw in the church. People doing that for the sake of the kingdom. He's talking about those who have chosen to be single, perhaps as a gift of God. Here's what we need to see when we think about marriage and the home, is that none of these situations, none, born that way, born differently, something happened at the hands of men I was deceived or I was taken advantage of or whatever it was, or I've chosen to remain single, none of those, none of those change God's good design for marriage. At no point in there does Jesus go, you know what, Uh, yeah, marriage is bad. At no point does he go, oh, wow, you know what, on second thought, it's a great question, guys, let's make marriage look a little different. None of that changes the purpose, the design of God's good design for marriage. He simply acknowledges that some people are single for any above those reasons. And it does not justify then a low view of marriage or a form of marriage outside of God's good design. We don't have time to dig into this. Maybe we should have spent a whole day on these verses. That is important in our day you hear that argument. I was born different or that way. Something happened or can happen to make it different. So marriage should look different. These are important conversations we need to think about and address and we do so by looking at God's Word. What does it say? Have you not read we come back to Scripture. It's just a heavy passage. It's a heavy passage, and I would just appeal to you this morning as our worship team comes up to close us out. As we think about closing our time by glorying in Christ, by glorying in our Redeemer, not glorying in any narrative, not glorying in any new design, but glorying in the way that God has made things and fashioned things and established things for His glory. I would just simply appeal to you that we must stand for, protect, build, prepare for, and prize God's good design for marriage. And so in this time, as we close and sing... I would just encourage you, maybe, maybe you need to take this time and respond by praying where you're at, sitting in your seat, maybe just standing there praying, maybe just praying with someone else or coming alongside someone else and just praying for them where they're at. But let's use this time to worship and to proclaim that we are going to glory in our Redeemer. We're going to exalt His great name. And we're going to be those who prize and value and esteem and build and protect God-honoring marriages. And we're going to be those who graciously walk beside each other to comfort and strengthen and encourage those who have gone and walked the difficult road of brokenness in the home or who are perhaps in the midst of it. That God has brought us together as the body of Christ to love one another and to love one another well. Let's pray and stand and sing.
Father, we thank you for your word. That even in difficult passages such as this, that God, you minister your grace and your truth to us. So God, I pray that as a local body, we would stand firm and in your good design for marriage and the home. God, I pray for brothers and sisters today who, this is a very sensitive subject. God, I pray that you would offer grace and mercy to them, comfort them in their distress. May they know your presence. May they know your forgiveness, your peace, O oh God. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.